Radio scholars tend to think that radio was always good for the music business because musicians could come on and perform and that would help sell concert tickets and that would help sell recordings. But people on the pop music side that do research think about radio's rise as catastrophic because radio essentially makes the record business collapse in the early 30s. And I think they're sort of both right. Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Jennifer Waits, one of your hosts. I'm Paul Reeswindell. And I'm Eric Klein. It's good to be here for the love of radio and sound. And today we have a guest, Kyle Barnett, who is the Associate Professor of Media Studies in the Department of Communication at Bellarmine University in Louisville, Kentucky. And he's here to talk about a forthcoming book that he has, Record Cultures, The Transformation of the U.S. Recording Industry. Kyle, we're so happy to have you on the show. Oh, well, thanks very much. So glad to be here. I'm excited to talk to you because we're also co-members of the Radio Preservation Task Force, a project of the Library of Congress. So I know that yeah. radio is is very important to your work and, and plays a big role in the book as well. Yeah, um, I... Was I've been involved in radio in one way or another since high school. Uh, the my my high school sort of allowed us to set up a little um, kind of closed circuit operation in our in our high school. We built the the booth in the corner of the the cafeteria. We risked our lives playing things that maybe not all our fellow students liked, uh, <laughs> and um, the feedback was immediate. Uh, <laughs> That's great. This was um, sort of as punk and new wave was making its way across the Midwest, and so there were some touch and go moments. We had to lock the door to the radio station a couple times, and uh, but it was wonderful. And then that's great, Kyle. Can uh, you name names? What record did you spin that got you in trouble? <laughs> well, let's see. There were a number of them. Uh, certainly, uh, songs by the Sex Pistols and the Clash probably got us in trouble. There were sort of the 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 upper class when we were really into like Led Zeppelin and all the sort of like classic classic rock stuff. So if we played like you know M's pop music or you know the English beat or something uh we we played I think all of Devo's Freedom of Choice. Uh <laughs> That was an especially nervous, nerve-wracking day. But it was quite, I mean, it was quite a great experience. I was the music director for that station, and uh, I I really learned a lot doing it. Uh, Unfortunately, that station later ceased to be, it became a snack bar uh, after my my time. So that was my first radio heartbreak. And then I didn't do much as an undergrad in college, but then in grad school, during my master's degree, uh, at Bowling Green State University, where I met Jen, I started up a, a radio show uh, after a, 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 uh, several friends had done so. And uh, in a lot of ways, it was like a return to that. Uh, and then more recently, uh, I probably got the job I have, not because of any great thing I've written, but because I knew how to work a radio station, basically. Uh, and the, the folks who were here before me didn't really know how to take that on. Students created a radio internet radio station here at Bellarmine called Bellarmine Radio, and uh, none of my colleagues really knew what to do with that. So I have the sense that they found that on the corner of my 
curriculum vita and uh that was my in <laughs> yeah so, are so you you're the advisor, the advisor. I am, yeah. I'm the, I'm the advisor for our uh, uh, internet radio station here. And so I have been since 2006. So a good long time. Um, several marriages have come out of uh, the radio station here. I've officiated one of them. Uh, wow. And, um, and now uh, at least one of the students younger brother has come through the program too so i'm starting to see generations which is uh mind-blowing to me but i'm you know involved in all the things that an advisor is involved in so we're definitely going to circle back to talk about uh college radio and internet college radio uh later on in today's episode but we but we have you on today to talk about uh your book to to go all the way back to the beginning of the history of radio and um the connections with with the recording industry with with records yeah, so this project, uh, the book Record Cultures, came out of my dissertation, uh, which I was working on at the University of Texas. And I didn't mean to write a book about the record business and the radio business, but it was that, you know how like a side project becomes the big project? That's exactly what happened um, with me. And so the book is about the rise of the record business or sort of the transformation of the record business after World War One, and uh, the business uh, expands dramatically during the 1920s but all through the 20s there's this other technology right <laughs> that is growing slowly but surely and the record business mostly sort of tries to ignore radio but by the end of the decade it's impossible to do so and so the second half of the book is about radio's rise and then how the record business responds to it. So first, there's this huge expansion of what the record business recorded. So a bunch of new record companies come into being, and they're looking for new niches because the big companies, Edison, Victor, and Columbia, have... Uh, kind of staked out their claim. So these new labels are trying to find new niches. Those niches become jazz, blues, and country, um, among a lot of other sub, sub, sub genres. But jazz, blues, and country all emerge as viable genres during this period. The second half of the book, starting in the late 20s, is the story of the rise of radio and the coming of the Great Depression. Uh, and those two forces kind of in the record business as a standalone entity, right? So um, standalone apart from radio, because that's right. It becomes yeah. it becomes intertwined forever from that point. Yes, Kyle, it does. Why, why did the record industry ignore radio? I mean, so you know, and I think in our contemporary minds, radio and music are inextricably linked, right? Um, even though yes. there is talk radio, we still most people I think think about radio as a, as a music delivery medium, and and the music delivery principally is records, is, is you know recordings. So it's sort of I think counterfactual to us, you know, to think that in those early days of the growth of radio as a broadcast medium and of the yeah. record industry, that they would be so separate. Why why did the record industry ignore radio? Yeah, so that's. I mean, there's a couple different reasons. One is it was a it was a threat to the record business's model for making money, essentially. 
So the the record business was set up around people buying discs, taking them home, and playing them. And my shorthand for radio, especially by the by the time it's the early '30s or something, is radio is sort of the streaming of 1933, <laughs> 34, right? So people start saying, "Well, why would I go out and buy another record when I can buy a radio and music's going to come through it? And as long as I can, you know, live through those sponsor messages, you know, the music's free." And in the depression, obviously, that was highly appealing to people so you know radio was this 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 way to get music for free rather than having to sort of go and buy discs the other thing is that radio early on um had an emphasis on live performance so which you which you probably know so the the so there was this emphasis on liveness and as a matter of fact in the early days when they would play radio transcription discs you know, sort of recorded discs, you know, the announcer would come on and say, the following is by electrical transcription, right? To sort of tell the audience, okay, this is not live, it's recorded. So there was a lot of anxiety about whether things were live or recorded in early radio. So this notion that the, the listener didn't want to be fooled by by a recording, you and, know. And Kyle, could you talk a bit about that timeline Think about the very early days of radio. How much recorded music would stations have had access to? And, and how difficult would that have been to play recorded music? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that people have a, a firm grasp on this because I think a lot of different things were happening. Uh, and I, I think a lot, at a lot of different kinds of stations. But clearly, uh, from what the FCC wanted, the emphasis was on live performance. And the musicians that really got something out of radio were the ones that would, you know, come on and do a, a song or two and then say, hey, we're playing on Thursday night or whatever, uh, and come see us. And uh, or, or even more so, musicians that made deals with stations and had shows, you know, that would supplement their live performances. But sound recordings were sort of just frowned upon, not primarily by the FCC, but some... Uh, radio stations would certainly play them nonetheless, but there was a there was a strong emphasis on on live performance rather than sound recordings, which is that's this even weirder when you think about. So it would seem logical to me that a lot of the people in early radio would have come out of the record business because the record re- sound recordings were doing a lot of the things that radio was going to do. At an earlier period, so there were like presidential speeches, and there were skits, and there were all these kinds of proto radio that's happening on sound recordings. Hmm. But, uh, and that's not ever really been mapped that well. But the weird thing is, as far as I can tell, most of the people that become involved in radio don't come out of the record business. They come out of like theater and performance, hmm. um, and so. There's this weird distance between the record business and radio, at least early on. Um, and I know that, you know, Victor Records saw themselves as this monolith. And then RCA early on was sort of approaching Victor and like, hey, maybe we can get together. And I'm, from what I've seen in the trade journals, you know, RCA gets pretty much ignored, you know. <laughs> Like, why would we make a deal with you? You know, and then a couple of years later, RCA buys Victor. 
and so radio goes from being this new thing to being central to media. Uh, and then the record business becomes this sort of ancillary thing that supplies radio with raw material, basically. So, Kyle, I think maybe an important thing for us to put in perspective here is that recording, recorded sound, predates radio as a broadcast medium by yes. a good number of decades, right? And, I, and, yes. and it's sort of, I think, in our popular mind in, in the 21st century, these things are all kind of you know, bunched together as, as old yes. media. But in fact, there was quite a bit of time for the recording industry to, to develop on its own. Right, yeah. So, yeah, by the late 1800s, by the 1890s, record businesses are coming into existence. Before that, they're trying to sell the phonograph as a business instrument. The idea was it was going to replace stenographers. <laughs> Same uh, thing as cassettes. Yeah, basically. This was Edison's, after Edison looking for a business model, he was trying to sort of make phonographs into like sort of replacements for letters and stenographers, but that didn't work. Um, and then, it, so then speeches and music and things started to get recorded, and that's really when it starts. But then, you know, it's like, you know, radio is another 20 years or so away in terms of being a, uh, a broadcasting medium. And so there was this period where the record business is really central to media. It's only, it's only real competitor in the home is the, you know, the piano mm. or the player piano. So, you know, radio, but then all that changes in the 1920s. Well, you're talking a little bit about that, those early years. I was fascinated to read in your book about some of these broadcast-like these performative and broadcast-like moments with devices that are in public places, like in parlors, um, that are out in public where people might be listening to a record with a group of people. Mm-hmm. And so, like you were mentioning, things that might have been proto, you know, it was that proto-radio when you had a record being played in a record parlor. Yeah, like at the, the penny arcades or sometimes bars or other sorts of public spaces, phonographs the portable models were taken to picnics and played. Um, sometimes at political meetings, uh, speeches were played. It was sort of used in a lot of the ways we think about radio being used later. There's all sorts of odd examples of that. Um, in World War One, there was a, a record label called Nations Forum, and it was about it was basically like speeches from people convincing Americans that we needed to get involved in World War One. Uh, and uh, just all kinds of sort of odd um, uh, uses that we usually don't think about because we, we tend to think about recorded sound and the phonograph as a music delivery system as opposed to doing anything else. So, Yeah, um, were, were these phonograph parlors that you mentioned, was that a common thing? And what yeah. were they? Yeah, so there's this great moment all the way back in 1890. They have this convention in Chicago, and it's all the phonograph dealers around the country and they meet up in Chicago and they're having this meeting and the minutes are taken and they're trying to figure out if this phonograph as business device thing is going to work out and it does through the dictaphone but it's not the main thing so so they're having this meeting and all of a sudden this guy stands up a guy named Lewis Glass from San Francisco he stands up and he says look I have this arcade in San Francisco and I plugged some phonographs into like a nickel in the slot kind of operation and I I 
charge people five cents to listen to a speech or some music. And I made $1,000 last month or something along those lines. And all through the meeting, there's this um, kind of, you know, consternation, uh, you know, like, oh, you can't use the phonograph for that kind of trivial sort of thing. You know, the, the phonograph's a serious business device, you know. But then other people are saying, oh, my God, this is the way forward. Like, it's an entertainment device, right? Um, and uh, it really changes everything. And then so slowly we, um, we go through this period where entertainment phonographs are played alongside, you know, early moving pictures and things like that in parlors and penny arcades and stuff like that. Um, and uh, so there's, they're still trying to make work out the uses of the phonograph early on. Um, uh, and it's, it's pretty, it's a nice way to think about what could have been uh, in terms of uh, sound recording. Yeah, it's interesting because we have our modern notions of what we think phonograph players are and record players are. So yeah. it, it, that's fascinating to think that it was used in all those different ways and, and in ways that intersect with how we use radio and and that tension between communication device versus entertainment device that's also something that you discuss as far as radio and um, mm-hmm. and how how do you think radio radio was understood compared with the phonograph in those early days well i mean so there's a couple I, i'm i need to sort of write more about this but it's fascinating because I think, you know, the phonograph is old hat by the 1920s. I mean, it's in terms of technology, it's been around, people know it. Uh, but radio is this altogether new thing. And I think the, the important thing is that phonograph records tended to, tended to be asynchronous, which is like, I would listen to a record or you would listen to a record, perhaps alone or in small groups at different points of time. Right. So the advantage of the phonograph was like you could play things whenever you wanted. You didn't have to wait for it. But it was also kind of asynchronous and often relatively small groups or sometimes individuals. Radio, when it becomes a broadcast medium, is suddenly reaching all these people simultaneously. And that was, I think, the biggest thing. It was it was exciting and it was frightening particularly to people that were concerned about things like public opinion and the so-called masses and, you know, what sorts of impact would radio have. Um, Both in the case of the phonograph and radio, it had to go through this period of uh, uh, adoption because people weren't altogether sure they wanted a phonograph in their house or they they weren't sure if they wanted a a radio in their house. So this thing about... Will it be good for the kids? Mm. Will it will it go with my furniture? <laughs> you know, where, where will we put it in the house? Where would be appropriate? And in the case of both the record player, you know, record players, the phonograph and and radio, it went through this period where it had to sort of become uh, attractive and uh, more furniture like to find, you know, acceptance into the home. So they had to make arguments about it being an edifying kind of presence. In the case of the phonograph, they handed out copies of uh, the opera singer Enrico Caruso's records, thinking that this would be edifying to children learning music appreciation. High culture, Um, essentially, right? 
Exactly. You know, yeah. And, 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 then, and, I, and I wonder, though. Same it, with radio. Right, right. At this period in which, you know, the phonograph is, is, is established and radio comes in as, as a new technology, did you yes. see anything in the record or in the press of people openly worrying, well, now phonography is dead? Right? Was there any oh, of yeah. that of that yes. shift that, that we see today? Right? That that you know, radio is dead because of internet radio or podcasting and video. Was yes. were phonograph records dead in 1922 because of this darn radio intervention? Yeah, they weren't dead in 1922, but they were they were dead by the early 30s. I mean, or at least understood to be dead. Uh, and so there's a great uh, article that's published in 1934 called "The Rise and Fall of the Phonograph." And it basically tells uh, uh, the story of all these sort of, you know, titans of industry, Edison, Columbia, Victor, and how they were all either uh, 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 purchased by or destroyed by the radio business. So by 34, the record business seems over. So, you know, Columbia becomes CBS. um, Victor becomes RCA Victor. Edison just days after the stock market crash, the Wall Street crash in 1929, closes up shop. So it it ceases to make records altogether. Uh, And then I think, to me, my favorite example of just how bad it got was the Columbia record label got passed around to different radio companies. And at one point, I believe this was when they were owned by a Chicago radio company called Grigsby Grunau, and um, Grigsby Grunau was just looking for ways to sell anything, products, during the Depression. And so they took out an advertisement for the Columbia home dry cleaning uh, machine, essentially. And so, what, so Columbia Records reduced to selling a dry cleaning hmm. kit. It was a big tank, and you were supposed to sort of put your clothes in and then this sort of solution and they had a big handle on the side of the tank that you were supposed to work back and forth. <laughs> and, and how were these ads um, transmitted, Kyle Barnett? Yeah, they appeared in um, – uh, these ads appeared in a, a magazine known as um, Talking Machine World. Talking Machine World was crucial to my research because this was the um, so wired magazine of <laughs> the phonograph industry in the 1920s. In the pages of Talking Machine World, there would be these endless articles about, you know, um, this Columbia Records executive recently visited, you know, uh, Urbana, Illinois, and was visiting various shops there talking about, you know, the new products. Or, you know, this storekeeper in Tulsa, Oklahoma, came up with a really clever window display uh, and how to sell records to people. So lots of emphasis on, like, are you putting your best foot forward? How might you sell more records? And the conversation of radio, about radio, there are all these great radio magazines of the 20s, but over in Talking Machine World, the magazine, they're sort of saying, like, well, okay, radio's a thing, but it's not as important as the phonograph, and we're keeping an eye on radio, but it's... It's, you know, it's kind of, you know, in 1922, Thomas Edison says that the radio craze won't last long. Mm. Wow. Um, That's in 22. Um, And there are these comics that are run about Edison making fun of, you know, sort of this comic where Edison is, cartoon Edison is saying, radio's the bunk. 
and uh, then a young boy saying, "Ah, oh, so's your old phonograph," you know. <laughs> And there was a lot of battles between sort of radio as the new medium and phonograph as the old medium. By the late 20s, companies are starting to look at combination phonograph and radio right. machines and things like that. There's, and you can tell the way the history goes by the way in which talking machine world becomes, uh, I think the title goes from talking machine world eventually to radio music merchant. Mm is what it's called by the time it goes under in the 1930s. So it's a pretty dramatic transformation. Well, and then in hindsight, both you know radio and the phonograph continue to exist into right. 2019. So it, it, it's interesting how you know they both persevere and find their own niche and audiences. And yeah, I know you talk a lot about about music in the book and and genres. So I'm curious, if you think about the early days, mm-hmm. what sort of music might you find on the radio versus on a phonograph? Oh, uh, yeah. So the music on early radio would have been much more limited in terms of generic scope. Like So the, the feeling with radio, and I think it was Paul that said this earlier, this notion that sort of radio would be an edifying presence in the home. So even the most remote rural listener could, you know, hear the best and brightest and uh, and be introduced to opera and to things like this. So it was very much like focused on on playing sort of light classical music and what derisively got called later potted palm music, you know, very sort of prim and proper kinds of things, uh, it was only later when some of the more local radio stations started to play music from the region. So this is thinking about WSM in Nashville and the Grand Ole Opry and some of that stuff. Um, You start to get, you know, these regional musics creeping in. Um, But it was definitely not the intention of, uh, of people like Edison nor was it the intention of someone like Lee DeForest, right, who, who, along with Henry Ford, you know, hated jazz and only turned to country as a, as a, you know, as an antidote to jazz, essentially. So um, uh, there was and that, not and a lot And that's principally racial in a lot of ways, correct? Because Absolutely. at that point, jazz Absolutely. would have been associated principally with African Americans and country yeah. music, while maybe not... Uh, associated with the upper classes uh, was at the very least white. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you look closer, it was really the record companies that made country white and made blues black. Uh, there was a lot more crossover in the early days. Mm-hmm. Um, but and sometimes a black string band would be a, would be mistaken for white, uh, or a white guitar player or piano player would be mistaken for black. Um, and so there's some interesting things that go on with that early on. But yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so uh, you see that kind of start to change through the 30s and 40s. But, uh, um, but oof, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a, lot more, a lot more going on via record than there was on what was al- allowable on radio. Again, because records is sort of this more private thing and radio is this you know, broadcasting medium. So Kyle, Kyle Barnett. You're the Associate Professor of Media Studies in the Department of Communication at Bellarmine University, and we're talking to you about your book, Record Cultures, The Transformation of the U.S. Recording Industry, here on Radio Survivor. Um, do you 
can I ask you a difficult question? Uh, why, sure. Why did record companies choose to racialize music in that way? Why Why did they make blues black and and country music white? Or why did why did that why did that project uh, why was it important? Yeah, I think it was really you know a lot of the decisions that were made were not meant to be long term. So they were making. Uh, making decisions on the fly. These were mostly record scouts. They were businessmen trying to figure out a niche genre for these new record companies. And uh, they were trying to figure out what might sell. So they would go into a region and say, what's good here? You know. But there was an interesting moment. There was a scout named uh, Ralph Peer. Peer was famous because he was one of the first scouts to understand that blues and country could be its own genres. And so what's interesting is he started to get the idea that you could record domestic music based on foreign catalog offerings, right? So the music of Ireland or the music of Mexico or the music, you know, Hebrew music or whatever it was. Um, he was looking at those, you know, sort of immigrant or so-called foreign uh, record catalogs mm-hmm. within his his company, and then realized that they might sell domestic music the same way. Uh, and it's so, a big country. Yeah, basically, and most of the record companies of the, like the big three companies, Victor, Columbia, and Edison, were all based in and around New York City uh, by that point. And they were recording stuff that was nearby. So they were not recording what was happening in the South. They were not recording what was happening in the Midwest. It's only later when, when those, these new companies in the Midwest emerge and these scouts start looking for new stuff that these labels emerge. And by the way, jazz is called jazz early on. Blues is called race records. Mm. And there's a whole history of that. And then country, in some ways, it's the last of the genres to get recorded, of the major ones. And country is first known as under a lot of different names, but it's called old time music, mm-hmm. and then later on known as hillbilly. So um, I think country is fascinating because you know it's the age of jazz, it's the twenties, it's the age of radio, and here's this genre defining itself at its start as old time music. It's like looking back nostalgically at its inception, uh, which I think is so weird. Yeah. Um, but the other interesting thing is that country, uh, of all the three genres, and this is because of racial politics, country is the first one to really make the most use of radio, uh, which jazz and blues can't quite do in the same way until later. So, so. We, is it time to talk about that? Tell us about that radio or those <laughs> radio stations. Yeah, I mean, the ones I spend, the two shows I spend the most time on is uh, the WLS show, The National Barn Dance, and uh, WSM Nashville's uh, show, The Grand Ole Opry. Mm -hmm. And um, neither of these shows really played old-time or hillbilly music, at least the way they sounded on records. They were doing more sort of like a vaudeville version of, of country music, much... I mean, in a lot of ways, it reminds me of sort of the way uh, I'm old enough to remember Hee Haw, uh, the TV show. Right. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, Hee Haw, the TV show is sort of a really, really, really late version of those barn dance radio shows. 
So it's kind of uh, like a variety show. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I would think that contemporary listeners right now, and well, it's it's getting late, but uh, um, Prairie Home Companion comes to mind as sort of a uh, a variety show yeah. with a lot of. Um, these days it would be called Americana, but country western music is and comedy. Yeah, it had yeah. comedy sketches and music yes. performances. And Kyle Barnett, those those shows that you just referenced, were they broadcast on one station or were they distributed to many stations? Um, that's interesting. I think uh, I think that WLS, for instance, in Chicago had such a range that I don't think they did a lot in terms of like. Uh, syndicating it at least right away because right. so many so many people you know within the broad swath of the Midwest around Chicago could receive it uh, and so one of the interesting things is you know people would people would drive for hours across states to get to Chicago to go see a national barn dance show they sold uh, scrapbooks that you could go and get autographs of your favorite performers um, or songbooks of your favorite performers. And uh, fans would get very, very, the radio fans would get very, very uh, sensitive about uh, whether this or that artist was going to perform. Uh, I found a, a record, uh, there, was a, there was a record in radio uh, artist named Bradley Kincaid, and he was did work for WLS and later uh, WLW in uh, Cincinnati. Uh, and he... Um, he did a performance up in Hamilton, Ohio, and for this performance, he wore overalls and a straw hat. And a woman wrote him an eight-page letter. She had loved his radio show and had seen him perform in Ohio. And she, uh, she wrote him an eight-page letter that began, uh, Mr. Kincaid, notice I didn't use the term dear. And then the next seven or eight pages is her just railing at him for playing the hick in front of Yankees mm. basically so she had been from Kentucky and he was from Kentucky and here he was up in Ohio performing this kind of Appalachian stereotype and she was so incensed that she wrote this sprawling letter saying I won't listen to your radio show anymore I won't buy your records and he saves the letter and writes a reply saying that, you know, he, Bradley Kincaid, this artist, this radio star and record star, would say, I'm so sorry you were offended. This is a, expected of me. I'm a proud son of the mountains. You know, and he goes through his educational pedigree and everything. And it's, it's really telling to me about how people felt about these stars of early radio. And it was like a very personal kind of relationship, I think, much really in the way that at least some folks feel about podcasts now. Mm-hmm. There's this kind of there's this intimacy to it, uh, the radio as a medium, and and I think uh, sound recordings as a medium as well. Yeah, and that complicates it when you have a live performance and the live presentation doesn't match with what you're expecting from what you've been listening to. Right. Another thing that is sort of fascinating to me is that you could have certain types of performances or certain types of music that were humong- that were huge hits on mm-hmm. record mm-hmm. but maybe never heard on the radio and and one thing that comes to mind is we had Lerone Martin on the Radio Survivor show yes and uh-huh. he talked about preachers on wax so sermons that became very popular as records but that type of material very rarely made it to the radio yeah. and there wasn't really an outlet and namely african-american preachers who um 
who yeah who are making these records and selling records um and mm-hmm. Laurel Martin was was telling us partly because uh they didn't have access to the radio right yeah it, it's really true I mean later on it this gets better but it's and I'm so glad uh that Laurel Martin wrote his book because that no one had been doing work on that um particularly in terms of gospel I think a lot of uh right uh, uh white writers sort of miss that they they um uh, this is another sort of problem in doing this research is like, you know, when you're writing about the blues, you have decades of all this sort of mythology and and uh, there's just tons of sort of romance and myth involved. And so it's very, very hard to to cut through all that and get back to what was really happening. But um, but yeah, clearly, I mean, you can see even with the biggest star, somebody like a Louis Armstrong, uh, you know, it's years after other jazz band leaders get their own radio shows that that Armstrong finally gets his and in that case I think uh, it's um, Rudy Valley uh, has has to be away for a number of weeks and Valley recommends Armstrong to take over uh, the Fleischman hour show he was doing uh, and so and in the case of the very first one of the very first big race records hits or jazz hits rather um, by Mamie Smith Crazy Blues it's supposedly because um, Sophie Tucker was sick and the songwriter convinced the label to take a chance. So often a lot of these early opportunities in radio and sound recording was because of happenstance. Uh, like they just, well, we'll just try this thing, you know, like that. But the whole thing was really provisional, both with sound recording and radio. Most early radio was never recorded. Most of it's gone. It's extremely rare, uh, and a lot of the early records, uh, you know, some copies of records we have read about, but they've disappeared. So mm. it was all very provisional, all very of the moment. And people, some of the people who were involved that went on to other things later didn't remember much or wasn't especially interested. It was just another thing to sell. So um, it's it's very strange to think about how important early radio and early sound recording is to, to some of us, but for some of the people involved, uh, I mean, some of the people, it was a, a, a passion and really even like a political statement in some ways, while others, it was just a means to an end. So Interesting. I, w- I guess I would um, attempt to stretch the metaphor to say like I could see how in 2019 someone uh, who's famous in podcasting now might be quite pleased if their first podcasts from from twelve years ago uh, were forgotten, so they would right. Uh, you could you could see that yes. that, would, that someone who has succeeded as a recording artist or as a radio star right. uh, would not mind at all to have that history uh, buried because yeah. they were they were figuring out how to do their how to do their thing yeah. how to sell their thing. One thing I should mention is there's this thing between pop music scholars and radio scholars. So radio scholars tend to think that radio was always good for the music business, right? Because musicians could come on and perform and that would help sell concert tickets and that would help sell recordings. But people on the pop music side that do research think about radio's rise as catastrophic because, you know, radio essentially makes the record business collapse in the early 30s. And I think they're sort of both right, but they, 
they don't always talk a lot to each other. So what I was trying to do was get, I was trying to inter. It's weird how you know we write these sort of histories of pop music or sound recording in one corner, and then the history of sort of radio in the other, when they're really really connected, and and then they're both also really connected to the rise of film. So it's a really odd. I was trying to sort of write this thing that connected them in ways that we don't usually recognize. Uh, and so I, I was going for like a history of radio that paid attention to the record business and a history of the record business that paid attention to radio. How do you think you've um, kind of uncomplicated that for people? And, and why do you think it's important to, to draw those connections? Well, um, when people think about pop music, even now, they tend at some level to think about performance. But we mostly consume pop music through sound recordings. So the analogy I use is like film has a lot of its origins in theater. But theater and film were able to create a distance between each other that live performance and sound recording has never quite managed. So even though we we tend to consume music through sound recordings, when we say popular music, there's still some implicit connection to performance uh, that I think can kind of complicate things. So I, I was trying to tell people that pop mu- the pop music industry is also a media industry. So I wanted to think about sound recordings as media, which then I think if you make that move, then it's a lot easier to connect the recording industry and popular music and sound recording to radio and to film, because then it's another media industry. But usually pop music doesn't get written about in media studies. It tends to get written about in history or American studies or, you know, rock criticism or something. So I was trying to sort of say, like, guess what? You know, it's a it's a medium like these other media. So sound recording is its own thing. And it's also the raw material for like every other media form, video games, television, radio. You know, Kyle, um, um, it sounds to me like you're bringing in that sort of, it's almost uh, industrial history in a way, right? Uh, almost right. Like a political economic aspect to what is often looked at sometimes uh, in isolation as culture, right? And, and yeah. I hear parallels to the internet killed the music industry, right? <laughs> Napster killed the music industry. Yeah. Right. Um, which is which is a narrative we've been living with, you know, for uh, you know nineteen years or so now. Even right, as right. Um, the music industry has recovered pretty well in a lot of ways, yes. uh, adapting to the internet era, adapting to new to new uh, ways of making money. Uh, mm-hmm. You may not see the wages same thing for creatives across. Well, the board. right. You may. Well, and I was going to ask this question. You may not see the same thing about musicians themselves, and I wonder: is there the same phenomenon? there in the 30s, in the 20s, in the 40s, of maybe the recording industry recovers well or becomes captured as part of the media industry, you know, Columbia Records, Columbia Broadcasting. How do musicians fare? (laughs) You know, I wonder, where do they fit into this? Were were their fortunes uh, uh, enhanced by radio, or was that a brief window in which uh, they're slowly back-squeezed out to the margins, economically speaking? Yeah, that's a great great question. Like, so... Like, so the average person that did sound recordings, you know, I'm thinking of some of those ministers that maybe did gospel tunes or speeches or 
you know, country players or whatever, they might do a, a handful of recordings. They're paid by the recording. There's no royalties or anything moving forward. It was like a flat payment and that was it. And you're talking about you're talking about uh, records in the early part of the 20th century. Yes, 1920s, 1920s. So that's kind of like the at the low end of what happens. You know, you get paid to make the performance, you know, and that's it. So and and radio's not for sound recordings. Radio's not paying any royalties early on either, right? So radio, this is a big battle over you know how people get paid that lasts through the 1940s. But that's another story. Um, but the, on the other end, the sort of most successful, uh, sound recording artists really branch out into radio, certainly, and even film. So a couple examples of that, certainly Bing Crosby, right. who start, who starts as uh, a musician, becomes a radio film, and to some extent a TV star, um, Paul Whiteman, um, the, the band leader, um, is involved in this. I think uh, Al Jolson, um, Louis Armstrong is able to sort of make this transition. And you see his his repertoire becomes more sort of pop-based. Um, and, and for that matter, Robert Johnson was playing pop tunes as well. But we tend to think of some of those characters. So the, as, the blues artists often considered kind of the er, uh, Delta blues artist in, in many ways. Yeah, those folks were those folks were playing pop tunes as well. So we 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 imagine this purity that didn't exist. Uh, 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 we imagine this purity later on. But but so even figures like um, you know Bessie Smith appears in a film. Um, Jimmy Rogers appears in a couple film shorts. Um, they're starting to realize like uh, the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers did a lot of radio work. Uh, so that's in country music, right? And, yeah, and I yeah, also... and, and so people across genres were people across genres were attempting to, particularly during the 1930s, the way you made it work, you know, was to not just be a record star. You were you had to be a radio star, and if you could, be a film star as well, uh, and a and a stage performer as well. So they they were uh, sort of you know cross media uh, uh, entertainers even then. And looking back to those early days, um, you know, I believe that musicians were unionized often, especially ones who would work in broadcast, right? And yeah. I, I seem to recall, but I haven't done my, my homework recently, that uh, the unions had issue with with the radio stations playing records because it challenged, you know, musicians being put out of work essentially, right? If, if you needed music for your, your nationwide broadcast every Sunday, well... You had to hire musicians to do that. It was a steady, a steady wage. If they could be replaced by a recording, uh, you know, maybe they get paid once, uh, right. but otherwise, you know, the steady work goes away. Do you, you know, what happens there? I mean, you know, eventually, you know, obviously recordings become predominant, but yeah. Well, we, uh, I mean, and in some ways, this is a battle we've never stopped fighting. Like if you, <laughs> if, if you, if you like. If you read just a recent article on Spotify, uh, like about Spotify and it, the way in which it, it pays artists for streaming, you know, you're going to hear the very same things that musicians were complaining about uh, in the 1930s, right? And so there are these battles, first regional battles, and then later a national battle in the 1940s, the Petrillo strike, uh, 
it was called. And uh, it was basically battles over how uh, musicians should be paid. And it was a complicated situation because uh, you've got the sound recording folks, you have the music publishing folks, and you have the radio folks, all three of which are kind of working at cross purposes. Even when Victor, the record company, and RCA, the radio company, are owned by the same, you know, parent company, there's tension over how music on the radio gets, you know, how musicians get compensated. So it's a it's a battle uh, that we only ever make truces on, and those truces are always temporary. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> every year for like the last ten. Uh, in Congress has been introduced some legislation to um, either end the radio's protection that it no, does not play performance royalties, that yep. basically the musicians on a record do not get paid anything for the performance that's on that record every time it gets played on the radio, or uh, mm-hmm. counter legislation that is attempting to get ahead of it and to doubly enshrine radio's exception, which is not obeyed on, on streaming, is not obeyed on internet radio, uh, is exclusive to broadcast radio. So indeed, as you say, this is an argument yeah. that's been in extant since the 1920s is still here a hundred years later. A topic yeah. worthy ten- of its own episode of Radio Survivor, really. The, yeah. Yeah. The oh my gosh. And it, it's endlessly complicated, but the, 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 the general rule I say is the technology is almost always out in front of the legislation. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, and then how we use it. So, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's a battle we continue to, to, to fight in different ways. Sort of in that, in that same thread, you talk about how there were some people in the industry who did not want, say, a record label did not want its performers to go on the radio. And right. why was that, that labels asked their artists to stay off the air? Yeah, I think Victor Records especially kept their people off radio early on. The fear was essentially that if people could hear live performances on radio, that they wouldn't then go out and buy a sound recording from that artist. Uh, and so there was increasing amounts of fear as the 20s went on that that people would just stop, you know, buying records. And with the realities of the Depression, that, that you know, that happened. So uh, I think companies were, I think especially the most successful companies, were really reticent to do radio early on. Now, some of the performers, on the other hand, were quite anxious to get involved in radio, I think. Uh, and so that, I think there was a sort of split between the, the companies and and the performers, at least in some instances, and that uh, I mean I think that's caught up in all the re- regulatory and and payment you know challenges that we continue mm-hmm. to see until today is whether radio is a promotional tool or whether it is something that cannibalizes record sales. Right. Yeah. I think that's that's certainly the case. Um, I love, I think one of the things I, that I sort of loved uh, thinking about while I wrote this is some of the folks involved in radio and some of the folks, particularly the talent scouts, the record scouts, and how they understood what it was that they were doing. I think I tried to think about these industries, both the recording industry and the radio industry, as cultural institutions uh, that told themselves 
things about themselves. They had a discourse. Radio's about this and not that. You know, we do this and not that. Uh, and I was looking to try to map what these people thought they were doing hmm. and why they were doing it, and why they were doing it. So, um, both in the case of the sound recording and radio, like I wanted to get a sense of what did the work mean, you know, decades later when they were interviewed by collectors and enthusiasts, you know, like looking back, like what did this work mean to them? And because uh, I think. If we just look at companies as sort of companies in the sort of economic way, we miss so much about the decisions that are made and why they're made in terms of the sort of cultural side. Like, how did they understand what it was they were doing? How did they understand the people they recorded? How did they understand the value of what they were doing? Yeah. Well, Kyle Barnett, you are the author of the book Record Cultures, The Transformation of the U.S. Recording Industry, and you're also Associate Professor of Media Studies in the Department of Communication at Bellarmine University in Louisville, Kentucky. And we're talking on Radio Survivor today about your book, about the record industry and the radio industry in their early days. And we're about to uh, run out of time for the radio program, but I hope we'll be able to mm -hmm. uh, continue on the on the podcast version of the show to go down some a few more uh uh, weedy alleyways to go into the weeds a little <laughs> bit with uh, Paul Reismandel and Jennifer Waits and myself, Eric Klein. But here on the radio show, I want to ask you: you, mm -hmm. you wrote this book about the recording industry, the you know people that made records, and the radio industry. Um, in part, if I understand it, because these two camps, these two universes of of professionals, uh, were often. Um, considered separately in the history books. Mm -hmm. And so what, what is the one thing you would want listeners today? What kind of ideas do you want to put into people's heads so that they can look back on this history of our, uh, of the American media um, in a different way? Yeah, I think if you start to see the connections between media forms and the debates we have about them, you start to see these repeating uh, patterns through the years where sometimes some of the debates we have currently remind me of something that happened <laughs> a century ago and it starts to look like oh we're going through the same thing again um, but I think the thing that really drew me to it was I think a love of both sound recording and radio and the ways in which both media really um, shows this broader range of human experience that I can't imagine a lot of other uh, forms doing. They do it in a very specific sort of way. The recording industry and the radio industry, I think, to a lesser extent, gets often demonized. Like the the, and I, I wanted to talk about, yeah, some of the the negative stuff, but also. I wanted to sort of show a broader range of, of what the work meant to the people uh, who were involved, I think, was kind of at least one of the things I was going for. And, and what did it mean? That, I mean, as, as, as easy as that answer must be, <laughs> what, what did they think? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. Uh, oh, well, so it, it varied wide, widely. Um, two quick examples. Uh, Ralph Peer. A uh, famous uh, record scout um, saw sound recording as a means to an end. 
uh, he later got into the publishing business. He made a lot of money. Um, and he, I think, respected the people at some level, but also denigrated them uh, in a number of different ways. And I think for him it was more about business and transactional. Then you have a figure like a guy named Art Satherly, who uh, was a talent scout born in the U.K., tested Triumph motorcycles, then moved to Wisconsin because he thought he might be able to meet indigenous tribes in a town called Milwaukee. (laughs) And uh, he gets involved in the record business. And he records whom he called, you know, the people who he called the, the country people. And for him, what he was doing was an argument for America's greatness. He talked about Mamie Smith as one of the few geniuses he'd ever met. He talked about people that other folks had denigrated, uh, and he talked about them in in high esteem. And so I think, along with the, the folklorists, uh, some of these business folks uh, went a long way in convincing the rest of the country that these people and this music is was worthy of uh, attention. And this, again, was uh, in, in what decade? Uh, the 1920s and yeah. 30s. Uh, and I think in, in Satherley's case, it went all the way through the 1960s. But um, I wanted to get at the cultural side of, of both the record and radio business to sort of see hmm. what the discourse was, what the ideas were, like what the attitudes were, uh, uh, to sort of see these companies as institutions that create culture but are also cultural entities all their own. So, um, so much of our culture comes through institutions. Uh, and um, I think trying to take the lid off and look at what they were doing and why they were doing it, I think we can learn a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, if, if you wanted to try to figure out what it meant to be an American or what it means to be to be uh to be the United States of America you could you could do worse than trying to figure out this moment in in American history where the where the national mass media was being uh invented. Yeah, absolutely. I mean there's a lot of stuff about nationhood and uh and and how we understand who we are by the way in which the music and gets organized and the way in which radio emerges. Uh I think there's a lot there. I think this is this is the part of the book where I think I garnered, uh, uh, you know, in the back of the book when they list, you know, what the topics are. Um, <laughs> this is why I think I got the American Studies uh, one. I get, I got media studies, music studies, and that last one is American, American studies, studies, and I think, I think that's in there too. So, well, uh, Kyle Barnett, associate professor of media studies in the Department of Communication at Bellarmine University author of the book Record Cultures, The Transformation of the U.S. Recording Industry. Thank you so much for being on today's episode of Radio Survivor. Oh, it was great. I really love the show. Thank you. Yeah, and let's let's podcast now. Oh, I'm curious, like, um, what surprised you as you were as you were doing this research? Are there kind of some weird factoids that you unearthed? Oh, um... There's so many of them, and I've lived with them so long that some of the things that surprise me now are just part of my DNA now. But, right. uh, but um, you know, like, uh, oh, does, ed- okay, does edible one. phonography make it into the book? <laughs> Not really. That's another thing I worked on. Is sort of yeah, instances of literal and figurative edible phonography <clears throat> over the years, which is a thing. 
But I mean, I think um, edible. Yes. Oh my lord. <laughs> here's the thing that there's a, here's a foundational thing that really surprised me. Like I guess I always thought that uh, when record companies got into the record business, the first thing they did was make records. And in the case of a lot of these emerging record companies, uh, Jeanette Records of Richmond, Indiana, Paramount Records of uh, Grafton and Port Washington, Wisconsin, they didn't start out making records. The first thing they did, uh, especially in the case of Paramount Records out of Wisconsin, was they made phonograph cabinets. So they didn't even they weren't making records nor were they making phonographs. They made cabinets to put phonographs in to sell them to American home homeowners. Again with the furniture so, theme. Yeah, so it starts with it starts there. It starts on the hardware side, right? So they they make cabinets, then they start making phonographs, then they start making if you, you know, to use the contemporary term software. Right, they make the records yeah. last. I'm gonna I'm gonna stretch this metaphor. I wouldn't do this if it wasn't the podcast because it's so disruptive. <laughs> but I'm gonna say that something. It it has a lot in common to me with like with Apple making the iPhone before yeah. before podcasts can can be in our in our heads. The the iPhone has to be in our hands, has to be in our pockets, and so it's like before right, yeah. before the before the phonograph has can be in the living room. They have to figure out how it what the design is. Physically. Right. Right. And so it's hardware first and software second. And I think because we we don't all often think about the materiality of it. So that was really surprising to me. And then to hear in the case of some of these upstart record labels of the early 20s, you know, they're figuring out things like how to make recordings. Like what's the chemical composition of like, you know, how much shellac? Do you need to make a 7.8 RPM record mm-hmm. as as cheaply as possible? So <laughs> some of these records sound terrible because they're adding in things like wood pulp. Mm. Like they're looking, they're they're trying to spend because shellac is it was expensive, so they're trying to figure out a way to make it as cheaply as possible. Um, and so some of the nuts and bolts stuff I think was so fascinating to me. How almost none of these recordings were made in studios, or I wouldn't say none of them, but a lot of them were made outside of studios, in storefronts and hotels and and different sorts of kind of makeshift studios. Uh-huh, like a podcast. Like a podcast, yes. And so, I mean, I think that's fascinating, too. So a lot of the sort of details of, of how people worked through what they were doing, um, I, whole- I find that really surprising. The whole furniture thing is really interesting, especially when I think about uh, how many people consume music and radio today. And and if you think about the early days with these massive cabinet, you know, you might have a, a mm-hmm. radio in your home that's rather large, that's yes. a big piece of furniture. Mm-hmm. And that today people might be consuming radio from a tiny little smart speaker and right. and how you know is everything getting smaller? But it also as we move it reminds in, us of how into... of how we got really freaked out for a minute on Radio Survivor when we realized just how important the clock radio was to all of our lives. That as soon Huge. as you put the, put the yeah. radio on our bedside table, it changes it changes everything. And now, I mean, I, Jennifer, I know that that's for you. That's like your whole 
that's your whole beginnings in radio love is is having it mm-hmm. uh having it there uh on yeah, next to your bed when you were a kid that sort of addresses the intimacy that you know radio is described as being more intimate and 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 another thing you talked about Kyle is public versus private and that records were private um so that's interesting like that radio has public and private that it feels very intimate and it might be in your home which is private but it's a public it's a public broadcast it's a public yeah and i mean records could records could be public too i mean in a uh uh there i have some unpublished work uh that i need to get to um on the ku klux klan recordings of the 1920s Wow. So the the clan uh, re- recorded not for like a label as such, but they they would sort of pay to get things printed up, and there were speeches and there were songs and things, and they would play these at big picnics and mm. and rallies and and marches and things. So it's a particularly sort of horrible example of of uh, of, uh, of public use of of phonographs. But but I think you know the the audience is always potentially larger with radio early on because it's broadcasting, you know, um, which unless a record's being played on radio, it doesn't have the same reach or same power. So um, I think that's... But yeah, the private-public thing is really interesting to me. It's also interesting in, like, when um, film stars start making sound recordings, it's before people can really see, can really access film stars outside of the theater. So, like, there was a short-lived record company in 1920 that recorded stars' voices hmm. talking to fans. Podcast. Right? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it's them talking to fans. It's another unpublished thing I got to get to, but... That's a that's um, a very... That seems very timely to me. I just saw Dax Shepard on Conan last night and was thinking about... Oh! Um, yeah. Because uh, for listeners that aren't familiar... Uh, Dax, Dax, who's married to a uh, star of the movie Frozen, uh, Kristen Bell, mm-hmm. uh, is huge in podcasts right now. Sort of like letting, letting yeah. the fan community into their, into their daily lives. I've never listened to the show, but I'm just aware of it being um, kind of the next big thing in celebrities. So is that like reality TV now on podcasts? Well, it's it's more like he's doing radio. They do radio, but yeah. part of the. Um, Part of the appeal to the fan community is that, um, yeah, it's like you're you're in, you're you're you have a, a seat at the table, with your mm-hmm. with the celebrities. You get to for for this hour, right. um, they're talking, they're talking to you directly. You have a relationship. Yeah, and film both in film and sound recording in the 1910s, you know, uh, the idea of celebrity is emerging for the first time. Mm-hmm. Like so, in the early films actors' names weren't listed on screen and early sound recordings, artists' names weren't listed. And then people started to ask, well, who was that? Right? And and we get this notion the sort of emerging of celebrity um, and then if you think about radio address later on, it's the same thing. There's this sort of intimacy, like, well, you know, thank you for sharing the evening with us and I hope that you you know, it's, a, it's this sort of um, connection and the thing that I find so interesting about those silent film stars on sound recordings in 1920 is you would have never heard the voices of those celebrities otherwise unless maybe you saw them on stage. Right. right. So 
Uh, like Gloria Swanson is on one, and uh, there's like a vaudevillian or a dramatist. And what they do is they all fall back on modes of address that are familiar to them. Because radio doesn't really exist yet in the way that it's going to. So, like, they fall back on media forms they understand. Like the answering of a fan letter, or a stage, a dramatic stage reading, or a vaudeville skit or something. Uh, and I just find those... Uh, the name of this record label was called Talk O Photo. Taco. And it was a, <laughs> yeah, it was. I know, I know. You always have to be careful about how to say that. But, yeah. Uh, and so one side is a spoken word recording, and the other side is a, um, a picture of the star with a, a, a reproduced autograph. Wow. Wow. And uh, it's actually back- only um, only twelve releases are known to have ever been released, and they're impossibly rare. Yeah. No library. Uh, in the United States has a copy of any of them um, but I know a record collector who has uh, uh, all all 12 oh. um, which he which he let me hear um, and <laughs> so anyway um, and those were all silent film stars yes yeah that's amazing yeah. that's wow I want to say just for stupids that that's back before the word taco was in was a word so you wouldn't have, it is not there was no branding difficulty in the, at least not in much of the united in states the 30s, but yeah. yeah um there was no taco um, tuesday i should also say that um uh here in louisville during the 1930s uh victor records did a storefront recording gig they would they would set up shop take out ads in the paper and then whoever showed up they would record but they would also bring some of the stars in to record and so Victor did this promotional thing where they brought in two country stars, Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family. And they recorded some music, but then they set aside some time where the Carter family would pretend to visit Jimmy Rogers in Texas, and Jimmy Rogers would pretend to visit the Carter family in Virginia. In their homes. In their homes, yeah. Yeah. And so they would do these little skits, right? So one of the members of the Carter family would say, well, Pa, who's that coming up the holler? Right. Oh, that's Jimmy. That's Jimmy Rogers, you know, and then he would come in and go, hi, hi, folks. How you doing? You know, and it these these cheesy little skits, but it would have given this level of intimacy to listeners, yeah. you know, um, that wouldn't have been easily reproduced in any other form. How, and radio does radio does a lot of that later. Yeah. As How well. much did these discs? This is I, I have an ulterior motive, but I also wanted to ask this earlier uh, in the hour. How much did a disc yeah. cost in the beginning compared to uh, like a, oh, a loaf of yeah. bread? You know, I mean, it varied. It varied a widely. Milk, I guess like uh, it diff- it changed at different points. Um, uh, Fifty cents was pretty common, at least at one point. Thirty five cents. Um, some of them as much as seventy five cents or a dollar, and then help but me then by the, help me put that into into spending perspective. Oh gosh, I mean, if, if I may ask you, yeah, um, I I, sh- I should have a better sense of this than I do. Okay, but I know that a dollar. I, I don't know. The, I haven't done the exact sort of translation of what a dollar would have meant, but I will tell you that um, sound recordings could be status objects like. In the case of Mamie Smith's Crazy Blues, there were reports, at least, of some people buying the disc but not having phonograph players. Wow. So just that having the object um, was meaningful, particularly to um, uh, African-American audiences who 
maybe had not been uh, represented in terms in which they could be could feel good about it in the minstrelsy era. So, um, but later in the twenties, the there is the rise of these discount labels that are sold through five and dime stores, the beginning of the so-called chain store. Um, and these records would sell for 10 cents, 15 cents, 20 cents. By the 1930s, uh, to help sell records, they started to make recordings that would release, they had a, a record company called Hit of the Week, Hit of the Week, and um, they would release these records made out of some kind of durium <laughs> wheat wheat sort of thing, kind of a very flimsy, not even cardboard. And then they would lacquer that, like sort of laminate that. And then those would, you know, I think if they were 10 cents, that would be maybe high. Well, I have, uh, I just Googled it and that's 10 bucks. 10 cents in 1930 would be 10 bucks, according to oh, the fastest Googling okay. that we could. Okay, okay, and, okay. Um, it's, because this is where I was driving with this. I feel like it because you're telling us about a form of radio and rec- and also a form of um, recording a yeah. product, a thing you could buy, that all sounds to me a little bit like they were struggling to invent podcasting just because this is my um, <laughs> my nature. Is, is sure. that it, it, it couldn't work. You couldn't actually invent podcasting until until the price of, of uh, recording and and owning a recording uh went way way down to uh to where it is now which is um practically zero like that there's this yes. weird that it was just too expensive to podcast in the 30s and that's why we didn't have it i mean i i think there's something to that so obviously we don't have a lot of early radio because it would have had to have been recorded onto disc because we don't get magnetic tape until you know it's of the spoils of world war 2 so you know, if unless if it was recorded onto disc, uh, uh, we don't have it. And so, when I was playing early radio clips in class, one of my students said, "You know, why are those? Why are there those scratches? <laughs> you know, behind the voice?" And I said, "That's a really interesting question." Like, <laughs> and I explained that you know, before magnetic tape, this is how sound was preserved. So, yeah, it would have been, it would have been especially. Uh, uh, it would would have been cost prohibitive in no small way by the way I should um, put in a plug uh, a a friend of mine uh, a fellow scholar whose book just came out uh, or is about to come out at University of Michigan Press he's written a a history of uh, uh, kind of early history of podcasting Mm, great Uh, his name's Andrew Bottomley oh yeah yes we've had him on the show yeah have you have I missed that we have oh gosh Jennifer what did we talk Um, to Andrew about and we need to have him back. Um, so we we touched on that a little bit. We talked about the early days of internet radio and podcasting with him. Yeah, his book. Uh, uh, he and I should do a road show. We should we mm. should take our books out on the road. Um, but uh, but his work on radio, uh, internet radio, and and podcasting. I think there's a lot of interest there. Uh, yeah, so- I'm I'm looking forward to having him back um, because I. I really appreciated, um, I've seen him present at conferences too, and I've appreciated hearing about that very early history of of audio on the internet and and how a lot of that is 
is really, you know, similar to the early days of radio where it's very hard to access recordings because there weren't really recordings. Right. Um, the early days of internet radio, uh, you know, things might have been saved in a different format and mm-hmm. a lot of that is sort of lost. You know, it's just lost. Um, right. and even though that history is not from all that long ago. Yeah, this I mean, a- Andrew Bottomley was on episode number 167 back in, uh, oh, uh, a year ago, November of 2018. Wow. How do you just call that up? I'm impressed. I you Googled have a file it. on the computer? I Googled it. <laughs> I Googled things. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah, um, I mean, I think the thing, this is kind of, I hadn't talked a lot about this, but to... Since I was, was, was studying early radio and sound recording, there aren't a lot of archives in terms of either radio or sound recording where they saved the paper, right? The memos, the correspondence that we get. If we're lucky, we get the sound recordings or we get radio transcription discs or whatever it is. But almost none of them save the sort of paper side of it. So I was always thrilled when I could get a glimpse of what they were thinking on paper about what they were doing. Um, and so trade trade journals were important, but when I got like actual business correspondence, that was sometimes really telling. Um, the other thing that I think is great about this is I owe a lot to collectors, both yeah. sort of record collectors and radio air check or transcription collectors. Like I could not have done this work without those those folks because they and they are still finding things that no one knows you know they, they find things that we thought either no longer existed or maybe we never knew about at all so there there's a certain thrill to uh, uh, you know uncovering some of this stuff uh, and then having to sort of rewrite history and this is I guess at least some of the work of the radio preservation task force uh, but and then with these record companies, some of them, you know, they were so small. They were doing a couple hundred, uh, you know, copies maybe in some cases. And so these are impossibly rare. Some of them are quite expensive. Some of them are not known to exist. So there's this thrill of it to me in terms of like we've never fully mapped everything that happened back there because it would be impossible. Um, the, just like with podcasting, the barrier to entry is so low yeah. uh, uh, that that at least at some point, like you can start a record company, you can you can you can broadcast out of your garage if you can get the right gear. You know, the barrier to entry was low enough uh, that there was a lot that went on, and I think that is thrilling to me in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's a very exciting. It's it's a story that I haven't that I haven't lived in as much as I've lived in other history. Like I can think of all mm. these films I've seen, uh, right. And that take you back and make you feel like you can really, uh, feel a time period or understand where a person, mm-hmm. what, the, what was going on for them. But yeah, the, the beginning of radio and the beginning of uh, the recording industry is sort of, um, as a gap in, in pop culture right now for me. Yeah. I, I have another friend who is doing work on early educational radio, Josh Shepard. He's the, sort of one of the main, uh, sort of a, a founder, one of the main uh, proponents of the Radio Preservation Task yep. Force. And he's doing Fre- a lot of work. Yeah. At the very, uh, at the very origins of 
radio in the United States, and he's he's getting into stuff that I have no inkling about. So it's truly exciting work. So um, media history is not always sexy, uh, you know, in terms of like the job market and and in terms of like what you know what people go to college for. Yeah, um, I do a lot more besides that, but. Um, uh, it is certainly a passion because it makes me see the present in a very different light, I think. Um, and uh, uh, I like the detective work uh, a lot. We do, so. too. And I, I mean, I like I like that you've um, helped us kind of see more closely these connections between the recording industry and the radio industry. So I'm super glad that. That we could have you on the show to talk yeah, about that yeah. and tease that out for I'd like, people. Have I'd you, like to read this book now. Uh, can I ask you? I've, I don't. I don't know if you've ever had Michelle Hilms on. Um, we haven't. But um, oh, you really should. I think we I should. owe I owe Michelle Hilms sort of the great radio historian. I owe her a lot because she wrote a book um, that brought the history of radio and the history of film together. And early on in my project, I thought, oh, I'd like to do the same thing with sound recording uh, and radio. And so just for that very, you know, template (laughs) um, that she did way back when in the 1980s, um, uh, uh, I owe her a lot. So uh, cool. I hope I hope in the in the coming years, I'll get to do more work directly about radio and sort of thinking about radio and uh, sort of. Citizenship, sound, sound citizenship, um, radio, and sort of uh, 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 Americanness in different kinds of ways. But um, yeah, that was definitely a that was me trying to channel things I've learned through Matthew Lazar and his his contributions oh, okay. to yeah. the, his contributions sure. to this project. Like always a good person to channel. Yeah. 